Would you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. I'll start our time by the reminder of the statement of a noted philosopher, George Santayana, where he said one of the great truths concerning uh, history, and that is those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, he was actually quoting and revising a statement made by a philosopher, a German philosopher, Friedrich Hegel, who said before Santayana, the only thing we learn from history is we learn nothing from history, a statement that Ronald Reagan made popular some years ago. Now, I share this because what Paul is battling in Galatians in the first century, we're battling in the church in the 21st century. His two-chapter effort to establish his credentials and therefore authority as an apostle equal to Peter, James, John, and the others has launched him now into the reason for doing so. The gospel was being amended. There were additions being made by some that were being forced upon the Galatians and they were buying into it and believing it. And listen, we are saved by grace through faith, period, end of sentence. Amen. Amen? Amen. Now, in our day, we have a growing movement that has influenced millions of Christians around the world for the last three or four decades. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And it is exactly what Paul was fighting against in Galatia. Now, followers of the Hebrew Roots Movement believe that all believers in Christ are obligated to follow the law of Moses, the Jewish laws and practices from the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. Now, in some groups, now get this, in some circles within the Hebrew Roots Movement, they equate rabbinic interpretations of scripture and rabbinic writings to being equal with Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, or the scripture of God, Numbers as well, that records the law of Moses. Now, they believe that since Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, that his death and resurrection actually renewed the law and Christians should follow the Mosaic law. Therefore, we need to be eating a kosher diet. We need to meet only on Shabbat or Saturday, the Sabbath. They also believe that the Old Testament is the lens through which New Testament Christians should view life and live accordingly. And many of them say there's no such person as Jesus. There is only Yeshua. And if you don't say Yeshua, you're talking about a fictional character. Well, Jesus, 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 right? That's who saved me. That's who shed his blood on the cross for me. And yes, in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, but we don't speak Hebrew. We speak English here, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, I don't know. I would be very careful about saying the name of Jesus means nothing when it's the name above every other name by which one can be saved. Now, Paul would address this issue in other letters to that to Colossa, as well as the one to Romans in Colossians 2, 16 to 17 regarding the kosher diet. He said, so let no one judge you in food or drink regarding the festivals of Israel or regarding a festival or a new moon or Shabbat or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. 
all the festivals, all the new moons that uh, timed the festivals, all the restrictions that were dietary were all pointing to Jesus. Regarding Shabbat, he said in Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be what? Fully convinced, fully convinced where? In your own mind. In other words, under your own convictions. Listen, there are those who say that the church needs to meet on Shabbat. The church needs to meet on the Sabbath. The church has never met on Saturday. The church has always met on Sunday. Do you know why? Because early in the morning on the first day of the week, the King of Heaven rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. And if He rose on the first day of the week, we ought to meet on the day He rose from the grave. And indeed, we do. Somebody say... Now, Paul likened any work, including circumcision or eating a kosher diet, to the simple gospel message was equivalent to turning away from Christ. Remember, he said, I marvel that you're turning away from him, turning away from him who called you into the gospel of the grace of Christ. Now, Paul, even last week, mentioned that Peter had to be rebuked because he was doing the same thing. He was misrepresenting the gospel by scooting over to the kosher table when certain Jews arrived from Jerusalem. Now, Paul, in this instructional portion of this text, remember, this has been dubbed a mini book of Romans, which is a major doctrinal dissertation. We have a mini one here this morning, and I know many of you are excited about having a doctrinal dissertation today. <laughs> But actually, we're going to find some exhortation within the dissertation. Okay, I thought you might say something to that, but I guess not. But basically, what we're going to learn about this morning and be reminded of is kind of a play on one of the passages we'll find in our text. It is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. That's Habakkuk 2.4 that the just shall live by faith. So if we're going to break it down, here's what the Christian life and experience is all about. You ready? Here's our title. Just live by faith. Just live by faith. Now, one more thing before we launch into this wonderful chapter, and that's this. We need to understand that faith is not believing things into existence. Faith is not some kind of power that makes things happen and makes things possible, as many teach today. But we also need to remember that faith, i.e. belief, is not absent of actions. Now, he's going to make this point in our chapter, but we have to remember that what James, the, Lord, uh, the Lord's half-brother, said in James 1, 2, 22, be doers of the word and not what? Hearers. Not hearers, only... Here's why. Because you're deceiving yourself. If you think that you can just simply hear what God has to say and not do what God has to say, you're self-deceived. He would go on in chapter 2, 19 to 20 and say, you believe there is one God, as he continues to make his point, you do well. And then he says this. How about this for a punch in the nose? Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Listen. Nowhere does the Bible teach or say or imply that once we get saved, we ought to sit around and wait for Jesus to come get us off this giant dirt clod. We're told we need to be working. Will work save us? No, but we still need to be working. Thus, we need to occupy until he comes. Now, Paul is going to make the case that adherence to the law 
is not among the works that we are to occupy ourselves with until the Lord comes. We just rather live by faith. Now, there's again a hint of play on words on the passage we'll encounter this morning. But our text is a bit of a heavy. So I've lightened up our points a little bit this morning. And all three of them, I'm going to kind of play Captain Obvious. They're things you already know, but we need to put them in point form this morning. So are you ready? All right, let's do it. Stand and read with me, please. Galatians chapter 3. We'll start with verses 1 through 5 and be reminded, just live by faith. Verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? The only thing I want to learn from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Lord, we thank you for this magnificent text this morning. Thank you that you gave Paul the mind you gave him, and then you... Um, enhance that by guiding him to write by your spirit. So Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying this morning and remind us not only that we just live by faith when we come to uh, the saving grace and knowledge of your son, our savior, but that continues in our lives and it manifests itself in the form of doing good and the other things we'll talk about today. So Lord, again, we ask your blessing on this time and that which is spoken and that which is heard in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, again, this is a predominantly Gentile church that is being uh, written to and Paul speaking to, yet it's being influenced by Judaizers to adhere to the law of Moses. Now, Paul said, this is foolishness. And he even said, this is so bizarre, it's like somebody cast a spell on you. And that's why he chose the word bewitched. He said, it's like, it's so contrary to what you learned. It's so contrary to what you actually knew and heard from me. Somebody must have put some kind of hex on you or something. And obviously he's being a bit facetious because a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. Hello? Amen. A Christian cannot be possessed by a demon, but they can harass us from time to time. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Now, he says to them, here's the one thing I want to know. Did you receive the Holy Spirit because you were obedient to the law or because of your hearing by faith in the word of God? Now, obviously, he knows the answer. He says, are you so foolish to believe? That having begun in the spirit, you're going to move on to maturity. That's what the word perfect means. By the flesh. He says in verse 4, listen, you guys have suffered for committing your lives to Christ. Was all that for nothing? Because you're negating it by getting yourself back under the law and listening to the Judaizers and forcing others to be circumcised? Now, Paul then, in combining verse 1 and verse 5, draws himself into his argument where he states in verse 1 what he stated back in chapter 2, verse 20, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. In who? Son the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now listen, here's what Paul is saying in verse 5 in particular. 
the scars on my back from all the beatings, the damage to my face from the stoning, these things that I portray in my physical presence to you, that I am crucified with Christ, to say nothing, verse 5, of the miracles that were worked by the Spirit through me, was that because I obeyed the law, or is that because I heard the word by faith? Well, obviously, it's through the word of faith. Now, here's something interesting. The word bewitched means to fascinate by false representations. Now, if there is a false representation, that means there has to be a false representative or a false teacher. That only there's that Captain Obvious thing I was talking about earlier. <laughs> now, Peter said this about false teachers, and I believe it relates back to this whole experience in Galatia and when in Antioch he was doing uh, the things that he did that he had to be rebuked for. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, speaking of false teachers, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him he is also brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them of not to know in the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to a true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed in her wallowing in the mire. Now, listen, my apologies for saying the word vomit right before lunch because you shouldn't say vomit when you're going to eat pretty soon. So vomit is just not something you should be bringing up especially when you're going to eat and you don't want to vomit after you eat. So I'm not even going to mention vomit anymore, okay? Now, one thing, I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> one thing we need to recognize about what Peter said is that the lusts of the, lusts of the flesh are not limited to sexual passions and desires. The word lust simply means to long for forbidden things. Now, one reason that the Hebrew Roots Movement and, a, uh, and false representatives in Galatia are able to gather a following is because obedience to the law satisfies the flesh's desire to be worthy to be saved. In other words, of course the Lord saved me. I've earned it. Of course the Lord saved me. I've been obedient. And Peter also likens returning to a works righteousness form of salvation to the dog returning to its own and to a cleaned up pig wallowing in the mire or the mud once again. And he says, it's better to have been ignorant of the truth than to deliberately represent it. Now, again, our text is deep and heavy. So our comments this morning are light and the points that is. So here it is. You ready? Yes. Listen, if you have to become worthy to be saved, we're all in big trouble. If you have to become worthy to be saved, we're all in big trouble. Did somebody say amen over here? I just want to make sure. Now, remember James who said faith without works is dead. He also said this in 2.10. Whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point is guilty of what? In other words, if you only break one law, you then are a lawbreaker. Now, James is saying this. If you sin one time in your whole life, you're going to hell. 
I mean, that's what he's saying, right? If you're condemned, where are you going? Well, some might think, well, that's unfair. That's disproportionate. You listen, we don't make the rules. God does, right? Amen. So whatever he says, we should just come into agreement with. And, and by the way, even though I've submitted many requests, God doesn't have a suggestion box. <laughs> Amen. He just wants us to check the box, obeyed, obeyed. believed and obeyed. Amen? Amen. Now, are there things we ought to do as Christians? Yes. yes. Keeping the law of Moses isn't among them. Now, Leviticus 17, 11 reminds us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make, next word, atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Now listen, for 1,500 years, every Passover, the Jews received a message that they were to communicate to the world, and that is an innocent victim will shed blood to cover sin. Well, Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Passover. When the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered, he fulfilled Passover. Passover is over. The perfect sacrifice has now been made once and for all. Our sins have been atoned for. Now, remember, atonement means to pardon, purge, and reconcile. And can sinful man reconcile himself to a holy God? Not even possible. It has to be done by the shedding of innocent blood. And the Bible says there are none who have innocent blood running through their veins. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, which is his own glory. So what do we do in light of the atoning blood of Christ? Just live by faith. Live by faith that he was the perfect sacrifice who shed his blood for our sins. And you're well on your way to a life of fulfillment that is pleasing to God. Amen? Amen? Now, look at 6 through 9, and we'll continue. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham, when? Beforehand, Beforehand saying, <coughs> in you... All the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, I like where Paul takes the Judaizers and the Galatian Christians, <coughs> excuse me, who were being influenced by them and many seeking to uh, live the kosher life and follow the Jewish laws and all those other things because he goes back 400 years before Moses and therefore 400 years before the law to make the case of being saved by faith through believing God. Now, we could spend the rest of the service and maybe a whole service talking about the things that are mentioned in the verses we just read, but I want to highlight a couple things. The first is this, in Genesis 11:31, and Terah took his son Abram, Abram means high father, and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter, we call her Sarai, her name is actually Sarai, his sons Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the who? Chaldeans, to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Where is Abraham from, or Abram from? He's a Chaldean. Now, the first thing we need to draw our attention to is that Abram, being a Chaldean, is a Gentile. There was no such thing as an Israelite because from Abraham came Isaac, from Isaac 
came Jacob, or Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, who later would be renamed the Jews, or they become known as the Jews after the Babylonian captivity, because the vast majority of Babylonian captives were from the tribe of Judah, so they began to be referred to as Judah, Jews. Now, Abraham was not a Jew. Hello? Abraham was not a Jew. Listen, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. A Gentile is simply a non-Jew in the Old Testament. A Gentile in the New Testament is a non-believer of any nationality or ethnicity. Now, that means Noah, who lived before Abraham, was not a Jew. Enoch, who lived before Noah, was not a Jew. Yet, Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hebrews 11.5 points back to Genesis in chapter 5 of Genesis uh, where there's a, uh, a genealogy given of descendants from uh, Adam to Noah. We're told he's actually the seventh from Adam. In Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he what? He pleased God. Verse 6 of the same chapter says, For without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Enoch was taken because he was a man of faith. Faith is defined as believing God. Amen. So, two Gentiles, saved by faith. Noah lifted above the wrath of God. Enoch, just supernaturally translated maybe in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, into the eternal realm by God himself. Elijah would get an interesting ride to heaven out of the uh, natural to the eternal realm himself later on. Now, the point Paul makes is that the Judaizers keep trying to make Gentiles into Jews when God was saving Gentiles before they ever were Jews. And he was saving them because they were believing God. Now, the other fact I would like to draw our attention to is from the context of verse 6 and the statement made there about believing God and having righteousness placed into Abram's account or Abraham's account. By the way, Abram means high father. And, and just continue thinking about that, and then we'll read this and see why God changed his name to Abraham. After these things, after the situation where Abram rescued Lot and delivered him from Sodom, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he what? He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Abram believed God. What did he believe? 
He believed that God was going to do something that required a miracle because it was humanly impossible. When he received this promise, he was 75 years old. Now the Lord changed his name from Abram, high father, to Abraham, which is father of a multitude. Now if you know the story, how many kids did Abram and later Sarah, she had her name changed too, Abraham and Sarah, how many kids did they have again? 600, right? Something like that. How many did they have? They had one kid. Now, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But if somebody's going to have descendants like the stars in the heavens and the sand of the sea, I think they ought to be having twins and triplets and quintuplets. And, but they had how many kids? One. Can God bring a multitude of descendants through one child? Absolutely. And we know that he did. Now, Abraham believed that God was going to do something humanly impossible, like Sarah having a child at 90, Abraham becoming a father at 100. This is what faith is. It isn't the power to actualize our own wants and desires. It is believing that God is going to do what he said he will do and that he is who he says that he is. And Paul says to the Galatians, those who are saved aren't sons of the Jews like the Judaizers claim. They're sons of Abraham and they are blessed through belief in God. Now, in Romans 9, 6 through 8, and Paul has a wonderful dissertation concerning uh, Judaism and Christianity in uh, those uh, middle chapters there. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, ethnicity doesn't save. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of descendants of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh. These are not children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as seed. Now, remember, Sarah and Abraham decided God was taking too long. Remember? So they came up with a plan. They came up with a plan that was actually culturally acceptable. When a woman was barren, it wasn't unusual to take a handmaid, impregnate her through the husband, and then that child born would actually be born on the knees of the barren woman, and that child, by implication, would become hers. So it was something that was culturally acceptable, but the culturally acceptable isn't elevated against the word of God ever. Amen. If God said a kid is coming and you two are going to procreate this child, then that's exactly what's going to happen. But remember, this is Abraham's boy. Even though it was Hagar, the handmaid, who actually gave birth to him and carried this young boy, that was Abraham's son. What did he say to God? He said, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. And God said, no, it's not going to be the son of the bondwoman, but it's going to be the son of the free, the son of Sarah. And this is what Paul is saying in Romans, being a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean anything, but it is those who are children of promise, those who believe God that are actually the sons of Abraham, as Paul says here. Now, the Jews aren't saved because they're Jews. Amen? Dual covenant theology is floating around today, and there are some prominent evangelical pastors who believe and teach this. And they're going to run into a big time problem when they hit John chapter 3 because Jesus had an encounter with a man who was listening to the things that Jesus said, thought they were sounding consistent with Scripture, came to him at nighttime so nobody else would see him. And Jesus says to him, Nick, you're the teacher of Israel? 
and you don't know you have to be born again. That's what the scriptures are all about. You must be born again. So the teacher of Israel needs to be born again. So all Israel needs to be born again Amen. in order to be saved. Amen. Amen. Now, this is why the Hebrew Roots movement is so bizarre. And it's nothing more than what Paul was battling in Galatia. We don't need to become Jews to be saved. Hello? We don't need to become Jews to be saved. There's wonderful things in Judaism that are, are, are shadows of the things to come, and we need to appreciate them and celebrate them, but we don't have to get under them in order to be saved. Let me also remind us that Paul answered his own argument that would have been on the minds of all ethnic Jewish readers in Romans when he said this, 3, 1, and 2, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Here's why. Because to them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. The prophets of the Old Testament were Jews. Moses was a Jew. Everything authored in the Old Testament, whatever was written, or whoever actually penned Job, which is believed to be the oldest book of the Bible, was written by a Jew. The initial apostles were all Jews. The Bible, the New Testament, was written by Jews, except for uh, the greatest portion, as far as number of verses and words, which was written by a Gentile, which is Luke, and that is his gospel record and the book of Acts. But the early church, those on Pentecost Sunday, the 120-something in the upper room, were all Jews. Jews. Now, Paul is telling the Romans and Galatians these privileges were not a replacement for being saved by faith and believing God. So here's our point. And again, our subject is heavy, so our point is not. Are you ready? If you can work your way to heaven, your faith must be in yourself. If you can work your way to heaven, your faith must be in yourself. Remember, faith requires an object. You can't just have faith in nothing. You have to trust in something or someone. And I would rather, listen this morning, I would rather trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross than wait and see if my good works outweigh my bad and God is going to let me into heaven. Because I probably already know the answer to that. So do you. Amen. Now, I would rather rest in what the blood of Christ has done for me than rely on my memory to do all the things that I'm supposed to do, including the 613 ordinances within the Mosaic Law. I would rather trust that my faith in God has saved me than my faithfulness to his work and words has saved me instead. And listen, where'd you go? You guys here this morning? Now listen, we're reminded by Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, that by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Now we are created, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things passed away. All things became new, right? So what became new? We had new works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I am glad I am saved by grace through faith. And I also recognize that if I was saved by works, I could boast about what I'd done. Yeah. I could say, you know what? He saved me because I'm worth saving. Oh, well, he saves those that are not worth it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I also know that it was someone saved by grace through faith. I should walk in the good works that God prepared for me to walk in. But listen close. Here's the point. I also know that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'm still saved. Hallelujah. That's right. Hallelujah. 
All right, I'm going to go home. If, that, <laughs> if I, if, well, okay, let's put it like this. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're still saved by grace through faith. Because Christians mess up. Did I just say because? Because Christians mess up. Amen? Christians mess up. And if we didn't earn our salvation, we have works to do, but we're not working to keep it. As long as Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, our salvation is secure. And that is where he is right now. Now listen, let me tell you a little something that I don't think we always recognize because we think of intercession as praying for other people. Listen, Jesus, according to Hebrews, is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily to make intercession for us. Listen, his presence intercedes for us. It's not that he's talking about us all day. God, this is one of mine. This is one of mine. This is one of mine. He's sitting there because the work is finished of saving us. And his very presence at the right hand of majesty on high is our intercession. And we are saved, proven by his presence there. Abraham believed God would do what he said he would do. And into his account was placed the righteousness that would come for all who believe through Christ. Long before there was ever a Moses, long before there was ever a Mosaic law. If you believe works can save you, then your faith or the object of your faith has to be in yourself and not in God. Amen. Amen. Now, 10 to 14. For as many are as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in, what's the next word? All. all things, there's the James saying, offended one point, guilty of all, which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, here's the quotation of Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through good works. Through faith. Now, having established that justification is by faith from the experiences of the Galatians and Abram or Abraham, Paul then shows how illogical it is to rely on the law as a means of salvation in verses 10 and 11, which is exactly the opposite of what the Judaizers taught and what the Hebrew Roots Movement is teaching today. The law cannot justify, the law can only condemn. That's why Paul would write, the law kills. That's what its purpose is, because no one can keep it. Because no one can keep it at CCT on, what's the date? November 15, 2020, the weirdest year in the history of the planet. Now, in verse 10, yeah, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 to remind the Galatians that the law demanded perfection. And if you sin once, you're cursed. And that was attached to failure to keep any part of the law. And as we read from James earlier, break one command, even once in your whole life, 
you're under the curse. And since everybody fails at some point, since everybody fails at some point, everybody is under the curse. Now, the proposition that a person can gain divine acceptance by human effort is therefore completely destroyed by Paul right here. Now, then he closes a loophole, a mental loophole, in case some were thinking, well, actually, if you combine the law and faith, which is what the Hebrew Roots Movement is doing, and look at them as companions that cooperate together for the saving of the soul, Paul answers this question by saying, the law is not of faith. It is not compatible with being saved by grace through faith. The one who puts themselves under the law is obligated, therefore, to keep the law all the time. That's what he means by live by it. He says then that Christ redeemed us or rescued us from the law and the curse that was created by the law by becoming a curse for us as evidenced by hanging on a tree. Now, Peter would say in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered how many times? Once. For sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, Paul goes on and then quotes from Deuteronomy 21, 23, to remind the reader that in Old Testament times, criminals, though executed by stoning, were either hung on a post or a stake of some kind made out of wood to display that they had broken the law of God. And this was symbolic of divine rejection. When Christ was crucified, it was evident that he had become uh, under the curse of God. Now, hanging on a cross was a great obstacle of faith for the Jews as it is today, but it shouldn't have been then, nor should it be now. Here's why. You want to know why? Yes. Isaiah 53. 8 through 10 of this wonderful chapter says, He, Jesus, He, the Mashiach ben David, He, the Holy One of Israel, He, the Lamb of God, was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare His generation? For He was cut off, a Hebraism for killed, from the land of the living. For what? The transgressions of my people. The Jews should have fully been expecting the Messiah to die for their sins. And they made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified between two thieves. But with the rich at his death, he was loaned an unused tomb for the weekend because that's how long he was going to need it. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for what? Sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth, so he couldn't be dying for his own sins. He was dying for ours. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. How in the world can you be cut off from the land of the living yet have prolonged days? You got to rise from the dead. There's a resurrection in Isaiah 53. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul, meaning there will be people who come to faith and believe through his efforts on the cross and his shed blood and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What the Jews and Judaizers and now some of the Galatians were missing was that Christ became a curse for us that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? Justification by faith. 
And on top of that, we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit as a result of our justification by faith and the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, two things I want to remind us of regarding the Mosaic Law. There was no provision for salvation within it. Paul himself, as we quoted earlier, said the law only kills, and it is not of faith. It was instruction on how God wanted his people to live, and none of them did. Secondly, there was no promise of power to keep the law within the law, only the directives it contained and the consequences of not following it. Now, I submit to you this morning that because the gospel is just the opposite. It doesn't tell us what we ought to do. It tells us what was done for us. And it tells us that the power of what was done for us is going to be manifested in us to live for God because he's going to give us his Holy Spirit and the power to be witnesses. Now, here's the last of our truths this morning. And I'll let you go since I said vomit so many times during this (laughs) message. Listen again, Captain Obvious here. You ready? If you have to work for your salvation, then it's not a gift. Right? If you have to work for your salvation, then it's not a gift. The most famous verse in the Bible says it all. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he made them earn salvation. No, that he what? Gave. Who? His only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, indicating the whole of the world was perishing, but have everlasting life. Now, I'm sure, at least I'm pretty sure, who knows in these crazy days, that none of you have ever received a birthday or Christmas gift with a bill inside. <laughs> at least I hope not, right? Because then it's not a gift, then it's a purchase. Now think about this. Acts 20, 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he did what? Purchased, Purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul would tell the church at Corinth, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are? God. You've been purchased, right? right? So you don't have to earn what Christ purchased for you. We don't have to deserve it. We have to receive it. Now, listen this morning. You ready? Yes. I'm going to come in close for some of you. To say you need to recite Hail Marys or say Our Fathers. To say you need to go on a two-year mission trip or to be circumcised or keep the law is like saying those things are equal to the saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you say you must do them to be saved. And that is to imply that the blood of Jesus was not sufficient to cover all of our sins. We don't need to add to anything, as Dr. James Uh, J. Vernon McGee would often say, it's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. Now, just live by faith. It's what those who are justified and reconciled to God do. Faith in Christ will change us. Faith in Christ will change us, but those changes don't save us. Faith in Christ will call us to repentance, but that won't purchase us back from the law of sin and death. Faith in Christ will call us to love and good works. But those things won't make us worthy to be saved. We do them because we are thankful for the free gift of God of our salvation by grace through faith. Now, Paul would say this just to 
clean up any errant thinking. Romans 6, 1-2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, let me finalize what he said by adding to John, or, or not adding to John the Beloved's <laughs> words, but adding what John the Beloved said. 1 John 3, 9, one of my favorite passages, and I hope it becomes one of yours as well once we unwrap it a bit. Listen, 1 John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Uh-oh. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Why? For his seed, speaking of the imparting of the Holy Spirit, and it's indwelling in us, his indwelling in us, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Some have used this to teach the doctrine of perfectionism, that we can become perfect before we get to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what John is saying. So what is John saying? Thank you for asking. Does not sin, the phrase means content to continue in. In other words, he who is born of God is not content to go back to vomit, to wallow in the mire in the things that they used to do. You lose your sense of contentment. And listen, I was thinking back this morning and it just kind of came in at the end of first service in one of those, this just in kind of things that happens hopefully every time somebody speaks on behalf of the Lord. I was thinking back to how God has changed me. And I've shared with you many times my experiences and, and what a vile human being I was before God saved me. But I think one of the most wonderful things about all of this is to think God saw me as such a mess. One who had dedicated their life to him at 12 years old, lived for him, told everybody about Jesus for years until I started drinking. And yet God looked down from heaven and saw somebody who didn't only wallow in the mire, they liked the mire, they stayed in the mire, they drank and ate vomit all the time, in a, figuratively speaking. <laughs> and God said, I like him. I want him. I want, I want to pick him. And you know why I think God said, you know, I want to use this guy because he saw from heaven in his sovereignty, this guy's all in. Even he's all in for the wrong things, but he's all in in whatever he does. And I want somebody that's all in for me. And if when I change him, he's going to be all in. And listen, it wasn't easy getting away from some of the things I, I've told you before, I'll repeat it for those who are new. I've had asthma since I was six years old, so I started smoking to cure it. <laughs> and when the Lord got a hold of me, and, and listen, I, I could not imagine not drinking for the rest of my life. I, I, just, I couldn't even fathom the thought. It was something I completely saw as humanly impossible. It couldn't be happening. I drank every day, all day. For 10 years of my life, that's how I lived my life. Cost me my marriage. Uh, my wife left me, and rightfully so. And our son never would have been born but God. Amen. I just couldn't imagine. It was too big. It wasn't possible. But when the Lord got a hold of me, I put the cigarettes down, never picked them up again. Immediately, instantly, permanently. I had had an experience that I'll explain to you in a few moments where I got off of alcohol. And I thought, okay, well, here's how I'm going to stay off alcohol. I'm going to get high every day. 
So that's what I did. Smoke pot every single day, all day, every day, just like I used to drink. But at least I'm not drinking. <laughs> How did I stop drinking? Some of you are old enough to remember commercials on TV for a place that has now become illegal and maybe somebody even got arrested called Raleigh Hills Hospital. Yeah. Anybody ever remember Raleigh Hills? Yes. Anybody remember those? Well, let me tell you about Raleigh Hills. I know because I went there. They had a two-week program. The second week was interesting. They would pump you up full of vitamins, get you healthy in a physical condition, and they would put you in a room where it was quiet and there was a, a movie screen, and they put your headphones on and they'd give you biofeedback stuff. They'd sit there and listen to waves crashing and birds singing and creeks <laughs> rumbling, and it was just, you know, putting me in a positive state of mind. That was after week one. That was week two. You know what they did in week one? Seven days straight. You ready for this? It's coming, so just say yeah. Here was my day for seven straight days. They would come in 6 a.m. in the morning, physically grab you, bounce you out of bed, bounce you off the walls, taking you down the hallway, slam you into a chair, strap you down, in front of a mirror that you could see your whole body in, throw one of those big, huge salad bowls in your lap, one of those stainless steel bowls, and next to you on a counter was a hot plate that had every kind of beer you could imagine, open the day before, and kept warm overnight with yellow ooze coming out of the top of every can. Well, they would give you a shot in your backside to close off your intestine, and start pouring those down your throat, running down your face all over your pajamas or t-shirt or whatever you were wearing, and you would drink every single one of them. And when those were gone, they started with the hard stuff. They started with your favorite booze. I drank black velvet whiskey every single day, and they would pour that down. And then it was Chinese rice whiskey. Then it was all these exotic drinks. They were just trying to cover all the bases to make sure that you had an aversion to everything. And the last thing they would give you after pouring down all this booze at 6 o'clock in the morning with a giant salad bowl in your lap in front of a mirror was a big tall glass of warm water. And when that warm water hit all that booze in your stomach, here it comes. And if it didn't come, there was a stomach pump on the counter, they were going to get it. Because the shot only lasted so long and if your intestine opened up, you were dead. Nobody could drink that much alcohol in that short of time without being killed by it. Now do you see why Raleigh Hills is out of business? <laughs> they did that to me every single day for seven straight days at 6 a.m. I didn't drink for a year, but warm water makes me sick to this day. I can't stand it. I have an aversion to warm water. Well, I didn't drink, and a year later, I found an excuse to start drinking again, and I did. I picked up the whiskey bottle and took off right where I left off, thinking I had put it behind me. And that's when I began to think, I can never beat this. I'm going to be a drunk for the rest of my life. First of all, because I like it. And secondly, because it's just too much to even imagine. I can't do it. But God. But God. Listen, I haven't had a drink for 40 years. Almost 40 years. 39 years. And you know why I haven't had a drink in 39 plus years? 
I got zero desire to have one. I couldn't care less. I have no interest in going back to the vomit. I have zero interest in wallowing in the mire. The Lord changed me, and I couldn't even imagine going back to that state of discontentment and ruin that was destroying everything in my life. I want no part of it. Now listen, I didn't exchange it for coffee and cigarettes. I am free indeed. And there is no temptation for me to drink. I can stand here before you today and say that I have not had a situation in my life in the midst of all the craziness and difficulties that every family goes through, that the church goes through, and that the world goes through. I have never thought, man, I need a drink. You know why? Because I don't need a drink. I need Jesus. And I have Jesus, and he has set me free, and I am free indeed. Listen, this is what John is talking about. When you're born of God and you go back to sin, you lose your sense of contentment because you grieve the Holy Spirit who is in you and you've broken fellowship with God. Your prayer life is hindered and all you're doing is existing. Who wants that? I don't want that. I want a thriving, intimate relationship. I want God talking to me. I want to know what he wants me to do. I want to know where he wants me to go. He said he will direct my steps, and I want them directed by him. I've walked in the mud. I've wallowed in the mire, and I want nothing to do with it. And this was all given to me because God is good, not because I am. I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it, and I'm still not working to keep it. I serve him because I want to. I serve him because I have to. Not out of obligation, out of adoration. He saved me. He washed me. He set me free from what I couldn't do myself. So I see myself like believing Abraham. Abraham was promised something that wasn't human pos- humanly possible. So was I. I'm going to free you from the booze. And God did it. And I didn't have to. He did it. And what he did is permanent. And it remains to this day. Just live by faith. Just live by faith. God's always right. We established a few weeks ago, he's smarter than we are. Like way smarter. Boy, if that's not the understatement of all eternity, he's way smarter than we are, amen? So therefore, he has to always be right. His plans are always best. They're better than ours. So let's just live by faith. Faith in him who has saved us, faith in him who guides us, faith in him who indwells us. Amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful again for your word today. Thank you for this beautiful book of Galatians. Thank you for the depth that is there. Thank you for the truths that we can glean. And Lord, we're grateful this morning for these truths that they are not exclusive to an individual or ethnic group, but they are true for all. It doesn't matter our past life experience or the depth of our wallowing in the mire. Lord, you can pick up, and as, has, as it has been said, you say from the uh, utmost to the guttermost and everyone in between. You can pick the drunk up out of the gutter. You can set the heroin addict free. You indeed can save and transform instantaneously and permanently because that's the business you're in. So we thank you, God, that the one who says a 100-year-old can father a child and a 90-year-old can give birth to it and create from one descendants like the stars of heaven and like the grains of sand on the sea 
has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we thank you for these things today. And I pray, Lord, should there be any who have been casual in their commitment or half-hearted or maybe not even committed at all, have a relationship with going to church and not with the head of the church, Jesus. I pray that that change today. And Lord, we thank you for the sin-breaking power of the blood of Christ, that we're just not positionally justified. We are practically saved as well. We thank you for these truths today. And we thank you for this great book and all the wonderful things we've experienced thus far. Help us, Lord, to remember these things, we pray, and just live by faith. And the one who made us, bought us with his own blood, and assures us of our future home in heaven. We give you thanks today for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.